Welcome to episode 84 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminson, and uh, the Professor PVO, Peter Van Onselen, uh, joins me as always. How are you going, Peter? G'day, Hugh. I'm well. Uh, what, what are we talking about today? What, what tickles your fancy? Well, I think we need a debate. I think it's a debate that we have to have. Uh, debate is always useful, and we should get on with the debate. It doesn't matter what my position is in this debate, how stupid I might be. It's important that we're having the debate. Needless to say, Craig Kelly has been in my mind uh, over the last <laughs> week, and particularly how we should handle him, because there's mm. a lot of um, there's a lot of debate about uh, whether he should be ignored in the public space, whether journalists should ignore him. Uh, there's debate about how we should report what the prime minister has said about him. This goes to an issue about uh, briefings from the prime minister's office and and the credibility that should be attached to that. So even though Kelly seems a little bit like old news. Uh, it's worth unpacking, I think, a little bit for us. Um, first of all, what were your thoughts of the whole mess? Well, see, the thing that was most interesting to me was less, you know, the debate that Kelly wants to have about the particulars of what he said and how accurate or inaccurate it is. It's more the way what he has said butts up against the health advice that we're receiving from our health experts in Australia, which, by the way, a lot of us at different points have questioned some of uh, what they've recommended or at least the prism through which the politicians have relayed to us what they've recommended during the course of the pandemic. So of itself, I don't have a problem with an elected politician challenging the official health advice, health advice not being something that is always consistent across all experts. However, what interests me is less that, and it's more this whole discussion around whether, not so much whether Kelly has a right to express these views, but how his leader, uh, that is the Prime Minister, reacts to those views. And that has been the interesting part of it for me, because we've always had maverick backbenchers who say what they like about a range of subjects. But here, Scott Morrison, who is known for his interest in command and control, uh, who is known to have a bit of a temper and doesn't like it when MPs or indeed anyone, dare I say journalists as well, uh, challenge his position on things. And here we have a Maverick MP who he's saved in pre-selection and he's not the only Liberal leader to do so, far from it, who is challenging positions that Morrison is trying to put forward. And, and the politics of this interests me because Scott Morrison doesn't just want people to follow the health advice as he keeps calling it and listen to the health experts. He wants to create an aura of stability attached to that for both policy reasons, that is to say, to have confidence in the vaccine and confidence in the health advice that is coming around how to deal with coronavirus, but also for political reasons, which is they have done their research as a party and as a government, and they know uh, that leaning on that health advice and deferring to it gives the aura of governmental stability. And that's going to be a large plank of their re-election campaign to try to argue that we got you through the pandemic. We're rolling out the vaccine by the time the election comes around. Trust us to have another three years. So when you have someone in your ranks like Craig Kelly running around spruiking alternative views, whether he's got a modicum of reasonableness or not in those, uh, it's a challenge to the Prime Minister's authority. It's a challenge to his unity. It's a challenge to his message that he's trying to get out around the health advice. And it's also, Hugh, a challenge to the tens of millions of dollars that are rolling out the door in political advertising, spruiking positions that are contrary to the position that Craig Kelly is spruiking. And all of that adds up to a prime minister that thinks, well, mate, 
don't expect me to save you again at pre-selection because he's copying criticism for being too slow to act and then trying to brief out that he was too powerful in how he did or didn't act. And it's just a bit of a mess, frankly, a sideshow mess. Okay, so I accept all of that. I, I, I want to drill down a little bit on what Craig Kelly represents, uh, because in a sense, he's an avatar for everyone else who might challenge. Um, it's really, I suppose for me, it's about how you conduct uh, yourself in a time of a pandemic. Because um, what Craig Kelly says is that he is pointing only to peer-reviewed, as he says, science that challenges the received wisdom on, on particularly on therapies, treatments, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and so on. And you can point to um, various drugs that have had their scientific backers around the world at various times as this pandemic has unfolded. The difficulty that I've got is that if you look at his um, ever-growing Facebook presence, and particularly if you look at the comments that appear online, the people who are listening and are tuning into him believe absolutely that Craig Kelly is onto the great conspiracy. And if you pad out what he's saying, it's not just about hydroxychloroquine, because the obvious question comes, well, if all these things are so good, why is the government against it? And come to that, why is, quote, mainstream media against it? It's because there's a profit motive. So you have to construct then a conspiracy theory. And the conspiracy theory says that some of these old drugs, which remain on the shelves, are out of patent. Therefore, there's no profit motive for the big drug companies. Therefore, if you go down this rabbit hole, um, the conspiracy is sustained by the belief that governments, drug companies, and somehow or other the media, the mainstream media, is engaged in some exercise to direct the world towards new treatments uh, because they provide money to big pharma, whereas old treatments, uh, because they're off patent, are cheap and therefore there's no money in them. And so what Craig Kelly is creating is not merely um, a, you know, an argument for the potential therapeutic benefits of a particular drug, but in fact, an entire new universe of thinking. And thousands of people sign up to this nonsense. And the bit that scares me is that I've seen that in the United States, that unless it is challenged, these so-called online communities uh, start to get a critical mass in the real world. Their lunacy starts to spill over into the real world. So, uh, you know, I think it is important. People have said, why do you talk about Craig Kelly? You're only giving publicity to, to his crazy ideas. But I think... Uh, America has proven to us we have to go to these things. Once they reach a certain level, they start to get a following once he's got a platform that's available to him from his parliamentary position and challenge them. So then the question then leads to how did the prime minister challenge him? We've been told it has been much mocked that uh, not on the first day, that was bogus. Uh, there was a claim initially came out that Craig Kelly before question time on the Tuesday, um, was told by the prime minister, was given a dressing down by the prime minister before question time. I spoke to Kelly after question time. He said, no, PM didn't tell him to rein him in. By the next day, it had been briefed out to everybody that Craig Kelly had been dressed down after his appearance with uh, Tanya Plibersek in the corridors, um, hauled in and dressed down. And this was reported. And there's some mockery about that. So what are the rules around background statements that come from the prime minister's office? Should they be taken as writ? How should those be reported 
so that the viewer or the listener has a sense that what is said out of the PMO is not necessarily God's truth, or is at least as fun. Well, others do it very differently to how I do it. Um, and I, I neither judge them nor I hope would hope that they judge how I do it. But for me, the way that I treat the PM's office and, and what they tell you is with an enormous sand pile of salt because they lied about whether he was in Hawaii or not, if you want to go back far enough. And they have misrepresented on a number of other occasions that I know of to me. Now, I say that, but then I quite like a lot of the people that I deal with in the PMO. And I think that they're, by and large, trying to do the right thing and the good of what they do. But by the same token, if as a journalist, if you try to find something out uh, and they don't want you to find it out, there is a line there that they have to try to tread where they don't outright lie like they made the mistake and they would acknowledge it was a mistake of doing in relation to Hawaii when they outright denied that he was in Hawaii when asked versus the the difficulty that they have where if they don't shut it down and if they leave room to move either it doesn't end the issue if they're trying to end it or it actually can sometimes confirm something when a journalist is fishing and this is the part, the latter part of that is where I have a little bit more sympathy with the political staffer versus the journalist, because a lot of journalists go on fishing expeditions where they've got bits and pieces and then they ask somewhat definitive questions based on that when they don't really know one way or the other. And then if the political staffer doesn't lie, then the cracks open and off you go. So it's, it's a, look, it's a balancing act, but my default position with any staffer, but in particular with the form that I have seen on a number of occasions from the PMO, I take it with a massive grain of salt, what they say, and that includes the spin. You know, the idea that Scott Morrison brings Craig Kelly into his office and gives him a dressing down and hauls him in, what does that really mean? I mean, Parliament is a first among equals venue. They're all elected in the exact same way in their individual seats, and it just so happens that one is then elected leader and another is not. And the one who is elected leader is elected leader by his peers, one of whom is Craig Kelly. Does Scott Morrison really give him a dressing down? I don't know. Maybe he does because he does have a temper, but maybe it's just spin to try to make the Prime Minister look strong after so many days and weeks and even months, frankly, of on this sort of an issue, him looking weak. So I don't just except when a Prime Minister's office says Craig Kelly was hauled in and given a dressing down. I think I mocked the concept on Twitter at the time when I was when I was tweeting about it because I I would just simply report that the PMO claims that X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that's because I've been burnt before by them, as have other, other journalists. So, you know, they weren't in the room either, by the way, when this happened. Uh, so I'm not even sure that you can blame Scott Morrison for the terminology coming out of the PMO that he was hauled in or dressed down. Uh, this may well just simply be some media flack who decides that that sounds good and therefore passes that on uh, to the journalists waiting to find out what happened. I'm not even necessarily certain that the Prime Minister would have portrayed it that way to others. And in fact, he, offer, he will actively downplay that for the sake of his other colleagues who would get the shits, quite frankly, if they thought that their leader had the temerity to treat an elected member of parliament that way, Craig Kelly or not. 
And the, you know, it is not insignificant that uh, Scott Morrison's own description of that meeting in his office, as given to Parliament, so on the political record, was that he'd had a conversation, a discussion, I think the word was, and he'd, he'd, he'd noted to Mr. Kelly that his views did not align with those of the government. But those are, you know, um, very modest words uh, that he's using in Parliament I mean, you- to describe what took place. Can I say, I think that the, the the real version, in politics speak, the real version of what I would consider addressing down is actually the way, even though I don't think it was appropriate, the way he spoke to Laura Tingle at the National Press Club, the Prime Minister I'm talking about here. Um, but she tried to ask this at the beginning of his National Press Club address on the Monday, and he said, well, he's not my doctor and he's not yours either, Craig Kelly. And he, would, he had other examples of various media conferences where he says, I listen to the medical experts, you know, not not the likes of a, a Craig Kelly, or he implied that. That, to me, is the more humiliating version of addressing down, because even though he was trying to have a bit of a, a laugh to paper over his own failures when challenged by Laura Tingle about that, if you're Craig Kelly, he's basically openly mocking that you're just an idiot, quite frankly, uh, and that you're someone who runs around proffering uh, medical ideas when you've got neither medical training nor, quite frankly, any form of academic training to give you analysis training in that sense. So that's the that that to me is probably something where I, it's been interesting to see the way it's been reacted to online because a lot of people have been upset at the way that Laura Tingle was reacted to by the PM, and I can see that. But by the same token, if you're Craig Kelly in your office watching the Q&A from the National Press Club, you're not exactly feeling like you were treated respectfully by the Prime Minister. And frankly, on that issue, perhaps neither should he be. No, he's got a he's got the height of an elephant, Craig Kelly. I'm not sure he'd be convinced. And the other thing the PM said, he says, I, oh, you know, don't get your, your health information from Facebook, get it from, you know, the chief health officer, etc. That's fine, except that the government is pumping out its health message through Facebook. Yeah, uh, you know, that's, that's the reality true. of this, is that they're, they're spending a lot of effort to get out there because that's where the audience is. Uh, just before we move on from this, the other thing which was significant in that was uh, the optics of the Tanya Plibersek meeting with Craig Kelly. Uh, some people have seen it immediately as a sign of, oh, she's the leader that uh, the Labour Party needs on the basis of one sort of stoush down a, down a corridor. But what really struck me was that Tanya Plibersek in that moment threw the switch to vaudeville, in the words of uh, Paul Keating, and provided a piece of political theatre which has enormous effect, enormous impact. And it just brought to me that one of the things that's utterly missing from the Labour Party under Anthony Albanese, nice bloke though Albanese is, fine warrior for the Labour movement, all that kind of routine. But there has been no political theatre. There's been nothing other than doorstops, et cetera. There's been no capacity, no no willingness to, um, to somehow or other take uh, the moment, the political moment, and, and own it through some sort of visual way. Tanya Plibersek did it in that moment, but it just reminded me that we haven't seen anything like that. You know, a, a Nick Xenophon, God bless him, used to be incredibly gifted at somehow or other doing something that just got noticed that day and got his little, as a, as a fringe player, got his little take into the nightly news and pushed the debate in a direction that he wanted it to happen. But you get the sense that what's missing is not earnestness, good intentions, but just simply a capacity to cut through with a bit of theatre occasionally in the Labour Party. Uh, look, I do think, in a broad sense, that that is missing. 
but when it comes to Albanese in particular, I've got a, a certain amount of sympathy for him in this one because he is in a catch-22. You know, Nick Xenophon, as, as you well know, Nick Xenophon doesn't have to appear like an alternative prime minister and, and even leadership rivals to Anthony Albanese aren't at this point trying to appear like alternative prime ministers. They're trying to look like alternative opposition leaders and getting attention and theatre can become part of that and that's what Tanya Plibersek got. But if you put Anthony Albanese in that situation, if he had done that, uh, or indeed, if Tanya Plibersek had done it as Labor leader, they would probably be getting dragged down by chunks of the media for having lowered themselves to a maverick backbenchers level and gotten into a corridor squabble with them. It would be potentially seen through the wrong prism, not the right prism, whereas it was seen in a particular way because he is under pressure, because she is a leadership rival, because he does, as you rightly point out, struggle to get attention from time to time. But he's in a catch-22 there, particularly in the context of the pandemic, where obviously a large part of what he's trying to do is look like a, a responsible alternative leader who's a safe pair of hands. But the difficulty is that doesn't sell newspapers and that doesn't get headlines. So as a result, uh, sometimes he can look like he's off the pace, which I think he is in fairness as well. So it's a tough, tough situation for Anthony Albanese. I think had he tried a version of that and where he has tried to occasionally do that, uh, he's, he's often come up short or it's been seen through the wrong lens anyway. Mm. The difficulties facing an opposition in a pandemic. Uh, I, I might pick up on that idea. But we'll take a quick break. Uh, back in just a second. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back. This is episode 84 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm Hugh Rimmington, The Hack, and uh, PVO, The Professor, is with me just on the Labour Party. Um, something which struck me about the difficulties for Labour at the moment was Richard Miles when he appeared on uh, Insiders, the deputy leader of, uh, of the opposition. Um, he was asked uh, about a bunch of things, and, and he, tried to put, he tried to square a particular circle. He launched off saying that COVID gives an opportunity to reimagine Australia. There's an echo there of, of Malcolm Turnbull's innovation agenda there, really. So this is a time to reimagine Australia. But then almost immediately uh, told us that Australians need stability and security. We need to return certainty to people's lives. <laughs> and I thought in those essentially contradictory uh, concepts is the real difficulty for Labour making any headway because uh, it identifies two problems quite acutely, but they are in, in contraflow with each other. Uh, people, I think, he's probably right, and plainly I think they've done their polling and they've listened out there, that people at the moment are not looking for anything too heroic. They, they, they value stability. They particularly value some job certainty. Um, and they're not looking to reimagine Australia. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, Labour is almost has a requirement on them to be seen as being the party that uh, is not merely just a stuck in the mud bunch of old conservatives, you know, huddling, uh, but but rather has a more imaginative, sweeping, you know, brief. Uh, what do you make of that as a dilemma? Well, firstly, let me just say, I mean, when when the deputy Labour leader Richard Miles finishes a sentence, I'm pleased. Um, you know, he, he does tend to fumble his way through a lot of his sentences. And by the way, uh, if he is listening or if anyone's passing this on to him, it's important to note that is both 
a political criticism and an intellectual compliment because I actually think that as he speaks, he understands nuance and he adjusts his rhetoric accordingly. But in politics, there's little nuance. It tends to be black and white. And Richard Marles is a smart guy who actually thinks through the elements as he talks and sometimes gets himself twisted, uh, whether it's fumbling to get a sentence finished or like the example you cite, Hugh, where he sort of ends up providing two contradictory positions on something. And that dilemma, which is really what you want to talk about, is a fascinating one for Labor at the moment because there's no doubt that people just want stability. They certainly don't want reform, even though the nation is crying out for it in terms of its public policy needs. And Labor is trying, on the one hand, through this new super portfolio that the Deputy Labor leader has been given, to look like, yes, we are all for uh, coronavirus reconstruction, which would require a level of tumult uh, that people don't want, but they want to present as an alternative stable force where little will change, but you can get rid of the government if you elect us. And that is a very difficult double act to tread, particularly against someone like Morrison, who does see politics as black and white and doesn't see the grey, who will therefore go straight for the black or the white contradictions in what Labor's putting forward, of which they are easily, at a superficial level at least, highlighted uh, from what Richard Miles has said and indeed what Labor is trying to traverse there. Uh, but uh, where does Labor go on this? It's hard to know, really, because on the one hand, they know intellectually that post the coronavirus pandemic, that is the time to strike where reform is necessary. It's, what, it's like post the industrialization period of, of political history or, or of national history, the two phases of it, three overall, but let's call it two, these are key moments for nations. And post the pandemic, how we respond through the designers of our public policy, who are our politicians, it's a key period for Australia as it is for other nations, because countries will, and I don't want to be too melodramatic about this, but they will rise and fall based on how they react to the post-pandemic world uh, in the policy settings that they put forward. And we need to have a debate on this before we even work out whether we're courageous enough to take particular steps in that post-pandemic world. But all of that flies in the face of a weary public who are worried about their individual job security, as you point out, uh, who are worried about debt accumulating, uh, and who frankly just want to be able to say, God, can we just have a holiday without having to wear a face mask uh, with a bit of certainty that we'll have a job to get back to at the end of it? So it's a tough one for Labor, no doubt. And, you know, the, the lessons of, of generations are that if you want to win an election, you have to distill your messages down to very simple messages. You have to keep you, and, and really not be distracted by things that are, are not core to three or four central messages. Uh, I get the feeling Labour is a significant distance away from being in a position to to clarify what their messaging even is we could have well, and on that you super quick on that one of the problems as well which anthony albanese has pointed out but doesn't cut it politically when you're not in government and you don't and i think he's done this around the climate change space when you're not in government and you don't have access to all the data and all the public policy professionalism and the bureaucracy attached to that it's very hard to formulate more than snapshot ideas uh, and that is a dilemma for oppositions. It's one of the ways that governments often catch them out on everything from costings to detailed design work that they do in the run-up to elections. It's not an excuse because they have to do some of it, but it is a reality. Mm. 
You've got uh, on the other side of it, uh, this tension that exists in the coalition uh, as uh, Scott Morrison appears to be trying to get this uh, zero net emissions by 2050 thing across the line. Just for a moment, focusing on politics within the National Party, how vulnerable is Michael McCormack? How much is uh, his position going to ultimately be the tail that wags the dog on this? Uh, is, is there a prospect that McCormack could, uh, could be toppled if there's, um, you know, if he's not seen as fighting against a move to zero emissions? I think there's always a dilemma or a chance that someone like Michael McCormick gets toppled as Nationals leader, because really he is an accidental Deputy Prime Minister and Nationals leader. You know, when he took over from Barnaby Joyce, that was unexpected uh, and, and it was because of, you know, unusual circumstances. Uh, and he was never really seen nor touted as a potential leader uh, of the National Party going forward. I mean, you know, others were expected to move past him uh, in into that role by the time Barnaby Joyce was ready to give it up, whether it be a progression of the party to a woman in Bridget McKenzie, albeit out of the Senate, or whether it be someone like Darren Chester, uh, or indeed David Littleproud as the more conservative option, who is probably his biggest challenger now, were there to be a move against his leadership. Uh, he's always got problems, therefore, and he knows it, by the way, as does his office, but... Uh, on this issue, mm, look, he, he will need to show that the Nationals can stand up to the Liberals. He seems to be doing that with some of the uh, flakes that are getting released here around uh, carve-outs for agriculture and the like when it comes to that uh, net zero emissions target of 2050. But then there's some blowback that's already starting to occur, I see, uh, in the papers from the business community, which the Liberals need to be ever mindful of uh, when it comes to those carve-outs going ahead. Ultimately, it will come down to where the compromise sits. If, if, if only the maverick nationals think that the compromise is unreasonable, then it will be no different to the status quo destabilising of McCormick without the numbers for that to matter. If, however, the compromise position that's reached sees the nationals not really getting enough for their constituents, that's when you add to the ranks of those mavericks who are already willing to vote for anyone but McCormick, you add the more serious centrists within the Nationals to that, and perhaps even a David Littleproud as an alternative leader pops his hand up and then off we go. It's funny, isn't it? You, you mentioned accidental leaders. If, if Michael McCormack is an accidental leader, so is our Prime Minister. Sometimes being, <laughs> uh, being an accident is, uh, is, is not the worst of all options. You can last longer than some have uh, been the anointed ones for a long time, as Malcolm Turnbull discovered. Yeah, well, that's true too. Let me say this though, um, you know, with with the uh, with the podcast prediction uh, peril uh, that I've faced in the past, I think from our very first episode uh, and being mocked for my uh, somewhat zealous certainty uh, that that Scott Morrison couldn't win the election, let people play this out, uh, whether I'm right or wrong. Assuming he does win the next election, and he's of course the massive favourite to do it, it's hard to see how he would lose. But if he does win the next election, I predict firmly, Hugh Rimminton, that he will retire of his own accord at some time during that next term uh, and therefore handing the leadership over. Uh, it wouldn't have meant that he would have had a long prime ministership. It means that he would have won two elections, one thought to be unwinnable and then the other as the consolidation post the pandemic. And he would have done so to deliver a government that already had two prime ministers before him, a third and a fourth term, as well as providing for a somewhat orderly handover, presumably to Josh Frydenberg, uh, which is not something that John Howard orchestrated. And he would become the first leader since Menzies and only the second leader ever 
because you can't really count Scullin as the first prime minister, uh, to make an orderly handover uh, rather than be carried out in a box, as they like to say, or indeed as is the case in Australia's second longest serving prime minister, John Howard's case, losing his own seat on the way out the door. That's a prediction uh, that I hope that people feel free to remind me of whether I'm right or wrong. I do think that Scott Morrison, to all his detractors out there who don't like him, uh, they're not going to get what they want, I suspect, with this individual. I think he will be savvy enough as a marketing man of politics to see the upside in his legacy uh, of walking away at a time of his own choosing, assuming he wins the next election. Josh Frydenberg's ears have just uh, pricked up, and uh, and we've and we've banked that one. So we'll see what happens in uh, in the course of the next year. Two very quick things. Uh, one is that South Africa has suspended its use of the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, because they say it, it looks to be inefficacious against their mutant strain. Uh, that's that's an issue. Um, Brendan Murphy, the now. Uh, Secretary of the Health Department, uh, giving evidence to a parliamentary committee, said that uh, he expected to be getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. You and I will get the AstraZeneca vaccine, as will most of Australia. We're not frontline health workers. Uh, So that is one that we'll certainly watch. Another one to watch, uh, it's being reported in The Guardian, uh, also in the Financial Review with an opinion piece from Linda Jacobson, who's from the China Matters think tank, is a breakdown on how China is likely to play Taiwan and where Australia mm. will sit in that, saying it may not be all out war, but uh, Australia is going to have to start to uh, decide how it's going to respond as China does things like shut down telecommunications and power on the island of Taiwan as part of a softening up. Um, what is Australia going to do about that? And how much blowback are we willing to tolerate from from the from Beijing? And that'll be fascinating because that comes back to their uh, elections in I think twenty twenty four, doesn't it? Around whether they go for a very strong pro independence candidate as opposed to somebody who's more prepared to be subjecting to the will of China, uh, subjugating to the will of China. So uh, a bit of a warning shot coming from China, uh, and I guess a warning shot of that warning shot coming from analysts. Yeah. So we'll talk more about Taiwan, I think, in the next uh, 12 months than probably most Australians have ever have ever mentioned it in, in their lives. Uh, I think that one's coming. Uh, PVO, we'll leave it there. Fabulous to talk to you. And uh, until soon. Chat next week. See you then. Take care. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.